0: today's episode of the Sixers beat is a mailbag edition where rich and i take listener questions ranging from whether isaiah joe's play means he should take furkan korkmaz's spot in the rotation whether shake milton should be starting why the Sixers are not rebounding as a team as well as we think they should be whether ben simmons can up his offensive output in the playoffs and a whole bunch more if you're not already an Athletic subscriber, head on over to theathletic.com slash Sixers where you can get 50% off of a yearly subscription and get access to the written work of not only Rich and myself, but also a national staff that includes Sam Amick, Sham Sharania, Seth Partnow, and more than I can even begin to name. Enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome everybody. This is Derek Bonner joined by Rich Hoffman on the Sixers Beat, part of the Athletics Podcast Network. We are following up a another win against some semblance of the Miami Heat, a 125 to 108 win, which improved the Sixers to 9 and 4. Like the previous game, Miami was missing a lot of their heavy hitters, specifically Jimmy Butler, Bam Adebayo, Goran Dragic. The Sixers got pretty much everyone back in their rotation now with the exception of Seth Curry. And Furkan Korkmaz, so it wasn't necessarily a fair game, but they did win. Hey, don't we?
1: I'm good, man. Can we ease up on the oh? The NBA is completely screwing over the Sixers. Everybody hates Philadelphia. I know that's what we do in this city. And to be fair, that Denver game was still a disgrace. But come on, I mean, the last two games have been handed to them on a platter. Yes, they didn't really take the first game. Last uh, last night's game, Thursday's game. There was a zero percent chance they yeah. lost, and they did it against
0: Miami. Like, if we actually care those could, about those, could be really important seeding games at the end of the year. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, and I, I am looking at
1: this like, who's going to care about seating at the end? I think that the seating could very well just be ridiculous. Like the Nets with Harden and Durant could be. The seven seed in the East or something like that. Wouldn't that be something if they had to play the uh, the play in tournament? That would be uh that would be hilarious. But anyway, I- I'm expecting a topsy turvy Eastern Conference standings. But if you actually care about getting as many wins in the regular season, I don't think you can argue with how this last week has gone for the Sixers. First off, the games that they had the punt. I think it was two and two, first off. Mm-hmm. The the games they had to punt, Denver at home, Atlanta away. Okay, so they lost both of those in normal times. They win one of those two, probably, probably. right? Yeah. It You know, maybe they would have won two, but maybe they would have lost two. You know, it's th- those are tough games in their own right. Um, and it is funny. I-, I hope they continue to win every game at home so we can continue this well, ridiculous—
0: Well, no, they did, th- they did lose Denver,
1: no, I know, I know, but like, in a couple months, we could say they haven't lost in two years here, except two games at the end of right. twenty eighteen, and one game in which Tyrese Maxey took thirty-three shots. <laughs> um, that that would be funny. So you look at that, and then you look at Miami, a team that I still think, when at full strength, is among the top to get out of the sure. the Eastern Conference. They I'd certainly say top prove,
0: three or four. Yeah,
1: certainly prove it to get two easy wins over that team with, and I mean, I think give Miami credit they uh They're a little more prepared than the Sixers to play competitive basketball when they have the skeleton crew, just because they have, they still had Robinson and hero and, and their they still system have, is still, their system is system.
0: Yeah. Sixers, yeah. you take out a post player. Like there's nobody else who can play any form of like, you're not posting up. Thank goodness for that. You're not posting up Dwight Howard 30 times a night.
1: No. And Ooh. And then in the Denver game, that was actually like, it was like their second or third best option still. So, but yeah, that the movement that Miami plays with those shooters, they found a way to make the games a little more competitive than they should have been. A lot more competitive in the, in the first game. But, uh, and, and here's the key point. And I said this, I believe, on the last pod. So, excuse me um, if I'm repeating myself. This is good that they're still getting all of these games out of the way because Boston and these other teams are going to be screwed if the NBA makes them make up these games at the end. They're yeah. going to be dead tired. It's going to be Peyton Pritchard playing 48 minutes a game for, for Boston and some of these other teams. So for the Sixers to still be on track, look, I, I get it. It sucked that their uh, early good play was interrupted by this COVID, positive COVID test, and then you know they lost a couple games that they had no chance in. But largely they're still in a pretty good position here.
0: Yeah, my my argument would be much more like they should be a little more aggressive because it seems like they have a pretty hard cutoff. If you have eight players, you're playing the game. And I think there should be a little more nuance to that. And I I get that you have to make hard and fast rules, but there are some of these games where it's just like like the Denver game for the Sixers, Miami these last two nights, these aren't real NBA games. I hate that they sort of count for the, the seedings and the standings and even just playing competitive basketball that fans want to watch. But I do think at the end of the year, it's going to largely even itself out. Uh, and yeah. we will probably knock on wood. Hopefully we won't have any more of these instances where, um, you know, we can complain about it. Uh, odds are it very well may happen. They're very aggressive in the contract tracing and they're taking people out of the, uh, out of the lineup. But I think at the end of the year, it'll, it'll mostly even out. Hopefully. hopefully. Th-
1: that is mostly what I was talking about from a, a strictly competitive sure. fairness standpoint, The product on the on the court though for the NBA it's garbage whether they're winning or they're losing these
0: games. All right, so I don't want to delve too much into that game in part because there isn't it was barely even a game. A real good night for the Sixers trio of young guards. You know you had Shake Milton, thirty-one points on fifteen shots, just looked incredible. Seven assists, only one turnover. You had Tyrese Maxey who ended up with fifteen on six of ten shooting. Uh, I think he had, what, 11 on 5 of 5 shooting in the first, was it first quarter or some of that bleed over? Uh, I forget. He but,
1: got, I believe it was the first quarter. He, he got the start and he uh, yeah. he took advantage of he it. He got
0: a, a real quick run out there early for his first bucket. And then he, I think three of his next four shots, I think, were on, on pull-up jumpers. Or one was a catch and shoot and two were pull-up mid-range or something like that. He made a, a, at least three jump shots in the first half, which was nice to see. And then you have Isaiah Joe, who only takes threes. <laughs> it's all he does his last 18 shots were all from beyond the three-point line uh that encompasses both of the miami games he made eight of those 18 shots on um you know on thursday night he ended up with 12 points in 19 minutes on four of eight shooting all from three only had one other contribution in the box score which was a block no two other a block and a personal foul no rebounds Ooh. no assists no steals We might a nice be seeing, block, though. Yeah, it was a nice block i might be seeing a few more stat lines from of that from uh From good old Isaiah. So I guess we'll pivot from there uh, and go on to the mailbag. This is a a mostly mailbag podcast. We're probably going to do these a little more regularly now. So we'll start off, and this will touch on what happened here earlier in the week and the Sixers not getting James Harden. We promise this is not going to be a James Harden-only podcast. Uh, So if you're sick of that talk, sick of that debate, we'll get it out of the way, and then you can go on with the rest of your podcast. So this question, What does a hard line that Maury set on trading Ben say about his confidence and Ben's ability to be the number two offensive option in the playoffs?
1: So I don't know exactly what it means about Maury's confidence, because there is a way to spin this to Ben. Now, will he be receptive to it? I'm not sure. I think early signs are probably positive in that, uh, in that respect, but we'll see, you know, moving forward. But the way you would spin this is that James Harden, as long as he lays off the ding-dongs, is one of the best two or three offensive players in the league. There are a lot of players who are in Ben's tier, maybe a little bit ahead of Ben, who I would trade straight up for Harden if the goal is just to win over the next couple of years. Again, lay off the ding-dongs, but he's got to do that. Um, So to me, I think the the better gauge of Maury's confidence in that is what he does now that Harden isn't available. Like, in some sense, if the goal is just to win over the next few years, trading Ben for Harden is a no-brainer. Now is where it gets a little bit trickier, and we will see. Um, You know, what what does Maury maybe offer for Bradley Beal? Is, is Zach Levine involved? I don't know what other names are available, but uh, now I think we start to learn about the confidence because – if you're just saying Ben Simmons for James Harden, I don't think that's even a lack of confidence in Ben no. Simmons more than just that wow James Harden could really help us in a unique way.
0: We made we made this comparison in the last pod. If the Athletic went, "Hey, we're trading you for Zach Lowe," I'd say, "Well, that sucks. I don't want to leave the Athletic, but I get it." Like I get it, you know, it's Zach Lowe. <laughs> um
1: that would be amazing. If you had to be the ESPN NBA writer and 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 Zach was just doing Sixers, Sixers podcasts with yeah. me, yeah. yeah. He would he would hate that.
0: I don't know. He's, he was oddly obsessed with the Sixers last year. Anyway, anyway, yeah. I look and first of all, I would disagree with the phrasing that he had a hard line on trading Ben. He had a hard line on trading Ben and everything else. But again, I think I think that is like it's hard to read too much into that because it's not like you were just trading Ben for an equal talent that's a better fit. Like you're trading him for James freaking Harden. So I don't think we learned all that much. You know, I think we learned that Daryl is still superstar hunting, and that's going to probably be Daryl for the rest of his life. And that was one that was available. He was aggressive in trying to get it. It wasn't enough. Um, but I don't. I wouldn't phrase it as him having a hard line on Ben. And I also wouldn't phrase it as the fact that Ben's here and the fact that Daryl wouldn't match Brooklyn's offer as saying that he has confidence in Ben being the number two offensive option. And, and like there are times where Ben isn't even the number two offensive option right now. Like earlier in the season, Tobias was a very, as an individual ISO scorer, he was a very heavily used option uh they've had the ball in you know shake and tyrese's hands quite a bit like they are doing it a little bit by committee certainly ben in terms of his 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 transition pushes and his driving kick is very integral to their offense in that regard but i think it's going to be spread out a little bit after after joel you know i think if daryl values ben it's because of ben's all-around game much more than his number two option in the playoffs um, i think I mean we even saw it at times against Miami like I think good teams and good schemes still fuck with Ben a little bit and we'll see if that changes.
1: <laughs> yeah. I thought uh I'm I'm looking up today today I read an article on the uh on the Ringer. I think Jonathan Jark's he had a pretty good stat on uh on Ben's points per touches. So basically among the the players who have the most touches per game in the NBA, you know, Ben is near the top. You look at there's a lot of these players: Steph Curry, Luka Doncic, James Harden, Trey Young, even guys like Malcolm Brogdon, Sabonis, Westbrook. Simmons' point per touch is way lower than the rest of these yeah. guys, um, you know, which suggests to me that he's not putting enough pressure on the defense as an individual scorer himself. It's kind of how I say when he's driving, his first, second, and third option is to kick yeah, it to sure. somebody else. Um, I know this comparison has gotten made, but at at his worst, I think Ben does remind me a little bit of later years, Ray- Rajon Rondo. Um, you know, when when you have the ball in your hands this much, th- there comes you know a great responsibility, and it is nice that he racks up all of these assists. But at some point, you know, you are responsible for the team's offense as well, and uh, yeah. So that's that. That has nothing to do with Daryl's uh, confidence on the. Uh,
0: on the Simmons front it was just something that was in my mind from the day. And and going back to what you said about Simmons being at peace with what happened these were his quotes from last night. Uh, and again that like Ben is a pretty tough guy to read. Like he might say one thing and feel another thing internally. But he I mean to be honest I thought this was more than he would have normally given. Yeah. Uh so he seemed to open up a little bit more than he normally does. Uh this is a business things like that happen. The only thing I control is how I approach my workouts, the games and my day-to-day things. I'm just trying to be professional and do the right thing and help my team get wins. He then went on and and continued. I'm blessed. I get to play the game. I love at the highest level in the world. There's far worse things in the world. If you tell me I'll never play the game again, that would be a different story. And then later on, somebody asked him if he was happy to be in Philly. And he said, of course, which I think was pretty much the exact right answer. He could have given again. Sometimes people say things and maybe something is bothering them more than they're letting on like, uh sometimes I say like, hey, I like Rich Hoffman and everyone knows that's not true. Uh but I think this was one where he was he was pretty um you know, I think he was he was pretty open and, and gave more of an answer than he normally would. He was less closed off than he normally was. Does that mean that there's no part of it that bothers him? No, there could be. Uh but he seems to be it was the right answer and he seems to be in a pretty good spot, at least right now.
1: Good, good perspective to have for sure. Uh, We will see if that is the case moving forward. And that's not even um, a value judgment on, on how he should react to this. It's just the the reality of kind of a, what could be a shitty situation. But I think the early returns are that he, uh, he is handling
0: this probably the most
1: team friendly way possible.
0: All right, let's move on to a question from Michael. What do you make of the Sixers' rebounding struggles so far? Why is a team that starts Embiid, Simmons, and Harris below league average in rebounding rate? So I guess here's some numbers for context. So far this year, they are 22nd in the league in defensive rebounding rate and 16th in offense. So below average in both offensive and defensive rebounding. For perspective, last year they were 2nd in defensive rebounding and 6th in offensive rebounding. And the previous year they were 6th defensively and 8th offensively. So both top 10 in both offensive and defensive rate, rebounding rates in the previous two seasons. So, uh, I, I
1: do not have all of these numbers in front of me, some some bad preparation. I, I have a few theories on this, though.
0: And by bad preparation, the, you mean I gave you the questions like 20 minutes before the podcast, so it's really on me, not you. It's it's a team effort here. I, uh, <laughs> you don't have to,
1: have to take all the blame. So... I don't know if this is the case now, but in the past, Doc Rivers' teams have not hit the offensive glass very hard. Um, They they have prioritized getting back in transition defense. So that that could be part of the offensive thing. Here's another theory. I mean, maybe they shouldn't be dropping
0: this far, but they are smaller than they were last year. Yeah, and and a couple couple, of these games. a couple guards, um, Seth Curry and Shake Milton specifically, who are really not good rebounders for their position. No and like we're uh, talking worse than like JJ Redick rebounders or close to it at least
1: that's uh when when you put it that way that really does put it in a perspective because i felt like every redick rebound was, was something accident. i remember yeah. it was like it's like wow that's that's different usually it had to bat... It, it, those were ones where the ball had to bounce and hit the floor twice <laughs> and and he came running in to scoop it up um so they are a little bit smaller i i do think you can um Brush a brush aside the the couple games, the Atlanta game, the uh, the Denver game. So th- there is something a little bit wonky with those stats. They are giving up a few more rebounds with Embiid even on the court, and I have noticed that like it, it's hard to criticize him for what has been a really great start. But sometimes he's not exactly boxing out at the level he probably should be. Like I would say, especially on the plays. After he makes a contest, obviously that's going to lead to a, a weak side offensive rebound potential if he leaves his man to contest a shot and maybe a uh, an old Kobe assist for the person if they can get it over his outstretched arms. Um, but but it feels to me like they're giving up a lot of second and third yeah. chance opportunities and, and he's not exactly getting there. I mean, we know Ben Simmons grabs rebounds, but but we also know that I'm not sure he's boxed out once in his career. Um which can, can lead to some offensive rebounds. It's been, uh, it's certainly been noticeable that they're giving up a few more of these, whether that's, you know, off long three point shots, or if they're off kind of drives where Embiid leaves his man, I I don't have a complete, uh, a complete answer for this. You know, Dwight has not stabilized the rebounding either. He's a He's usually fighting and fouling well, somebody yeah. when, when on the defensive glass. So I don't know. I, I would expect it to get better at some point, but uh, it certainly has been noticeable that they're, they're not cleaning the glass. Yeah, the I,
0: I would say my first part of this answer would be small sample early season. Like I like you said, I expect them to get better yeah. on both sides of the court. Um, so I think that is certainly an aspect to this. But you, you brought up Doc, and here are the Clippers numbers from 2013-14 on. Here in offensive rebounding, 19, 24, 29th, 24th, a random 5th, 20th, and then 9th last year. Defensively, we're talking about 26, 8, 27, 9, 25, 21, 10. So some up, up and down, but a lot in the 20s there on both of those. You know, I think the other thing I would say besides, you know, early season, you know, I do think when you take him beat and you take him a step or two out farther out, like you're opening some up on the back end there, And also when you slide some defenders to maybe help off of there and pinch down, like those are then, the shooters are leaving, have an avenue to go in and and, and crash the offensive glass just a little bit more. So I think they're putting a little bit more pressure on Embiid. Like you said, he's not been perfect in that regard so far. Uh, And, you know, the Sixers in previous years, like part of the drop coverage at the, the, the real deep drop that they played was they sold out for defensive rebounds. So some of those you know, I think Embiid and the scheme mask some of the poor defensive rebounders they had before, like JJ. Like, quite frankly, Josh Richardson. Uh, Shake when he entered the rotation. They do not have a whole bunch of guards, historically, who are great rebounders other than Ben. And I think Embiid and the scheme sort of mask some of that. So I would expect them to drop a little bit. Would I expect them to drop from 2 to 26 or whatever the hell they're at? No. Like, I think they'll probably end up... I think they'll end up being a top 10 defensive rebounding team. I think Embiid's just that dominant in that respect. And they're still not playing a super aggressive scheme, but I think early season noise attributed some of it to, uh, you know, a little bit of a change in scheme and some of it, the players just not cleaning up like they need to.
1: It's been a rough week for them too. I I do remember looking at those numbers after the Charlotte series and while they were, you know, not top five, like they have been in past years, they were an above average defensive rebounding team at that point. So Small sample. And also, by the way, if you want to improve the uh, offensive rebounding, play Tony Bradley. He's the greatest offensive
0: (sighs) rebounder ever. Yes. Might be giving up one or two things in other aspects of the game, though. All right. Fair point. You heard it here first, so start Tony Bradley over Joel Embiid.
2: As you all know by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using the BetMGM lines to make all our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, 21 plus to wager, visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Nevada, New York, and Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call one 877 8 hope Y or text hope Y. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-522-4700 in Kansas and Nevada, 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, one 800 270 7117 for confidential help in Michigan. In partnership with Kansas, Crossing Casino, and Hotel. In Ontario, if you have questions or concerns about your gambling or someone else close to you, please contact Connects Ontario at one 866 2600 to speak to an advisor free of charge sports betting is void in georgia hawaii and utah and other states where prohibited promotional offers not available in nevada and new york don't forget if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet use the bonus code ta basketball and you'll get a one year subscription to the athletic plus up to a one thousand dollar first bet offer on your first wager
0: all right this one from sean what is the three point percentage each of the following players need to shoot for you to feel comfortable playing them in an eight to nine man rotation, playoff rotation. Uh, Mike Scott, Furkan, Korkmaz, Matisse Seibel, and Isaiah Joe.
1: So I'll let you go first with this, but I'm going to change the question a little bit.
0: I'm, not, I'm probably going to change the question a little bit too.
1: I'm not going to give you a percentage, but rank these guys from the, the lowest threshold you have to putting them in the rotation to to the highest. Like, And when I say the highest, it means... This player has to shoot a higher percentage for me to be comfortable putting him in the rotation.
0: Well, I'm going to add another element to that. I'm much less concerned with percentage, unless it's like low 30s, than I am in volume. Mm -hmm. Like Matisse, he's so low volume, he needs to be knocking down his shots because he's not taking them enough. There's not a high enough degree of difficulty for him to really spread the floor. Like if, if Isaiah Joe shoots 35%, but he's shooting 10 per 36 minutes he's going to have way more gravity than Matisse Thibel shooting two per 36 minutes at 35%. So I think this is only one pretty small part of the equation here. So Matisse, and it's tough for Matisse because on the one hand you need his percentage to be high because he doesn't shoot much and does pretty much nothing else in the half court. But on the other hand, because it's such a low sample, it's tough to know whether that percentage even means anything. So I think Matisse is going to have the highest barrier to proof of being in that rotation even though he has the most defensive ability by far by far isaiah joe could come out and miss the next 23 pointers and i'm gonna say you know what i have confidence that 21st is going in so his percentage is much less important to me than his volume uh if i'm trying to figure out whether isaiah joe should be in the playoff rotation it's going to come down to defense and how exploitable he is and we've really only seen him play major minutes against one team so far and that team barely had nba players on it So I'm going to be focusing on how he looks against a wide variety of offensive players he has to guard. The three-point percentage I'm really not paying too much attention to because I have confidence even after a couple games, he's going to be able to get that shot off in the NBA. So I guess the way I would phrase that, Mike Scott, I think, needs to have a high percentage because he's a one-position player who doesn't really have much that he provides outside of that. Same thing with Furkan Korkmaz. When he's not making a shot, And he has a little bit of gravity, so I give him a little more leeway than someone like Theibel. When he's not making a shot, it's tough. All these players need to make their shots. (laughs) It it does in part come, especially like Matisse, I want to say he needs it less because he provides the most defensively, but he provides the least offensively outside of the shot too. Um, It's a tricky question for sure. Yeah. I would say, honestly, the way I would phrase this, three-point percentage, the one I'm really not paying much attention to is Isaiah Joe. That he, he he needs a, the, he need, he can have the lowest three point percentage and still provide the most value on offense is the way I would phrase it. I like
1: what we saw from him the last few nights um, especially the the second game against Miami. you could see the unrepentant bomber in him yes. where, where he's catching it there there was one zone possession where Ben was not getting them into anything good. He threw it to shake on the wing shake kind of fumbled it and, and shakes on the wing and Isaiah Joe is above the break c- kind of towards the middle. And he is a good three or four feet behind the three point line. Shake throws him a bad pass. Like it was, I think he had to reach down to his feet to catch it. And he went up right away and bombed it and he made it. And I think, uh, I, I really, I'm very interested in this Isaiah Joe. Like you said, and he only we shoots threes, the last
0: but. game too. Like, He can move his feet defensively and he had some pretty good defensive possessions against the heat here in that second game. Now, what does that mean in the playoffs when Brad Stevens can attack him? Yeah, I'm I'm still scared, (laughs) but he has some defensive potential down the line. I'm just not sure if it's going to realize itself in time for the playoffs here in a couple months.
1: Two notes on his defense. Number one, he is not, I mean, again, we're talking about basically a week's worth of sample here. He, uh, he needs to figure out how to not foul three-point shooters. He had another one last night where his hand was completely in the cookie jar against Tyler Hero. Like full hand extended guarding Tyler Hero. Or maybe it was Max Struess. I don't I don't even know who it was. Doesn't matter. You can't do that. Um and yeah. number two, yes, you're right, he can move his feet, which is why one of my favorite things over the past week in watching Sixers games is when somebody is driving and then they kind of make contact with them, whether it's with that off arm or shoulder, he goes flying like Neo in the matrix when, when he gets hit. I mean, he is a string bean man. He goes flying backwards. And sometimes I think he might be able to get charge calls on those plays too. It just really does illustrate how much he needs to get into the gym. Seems like he has a good work ethic. He was, uh, he was sweating and and basically uh, trying to catch his breath after last night's game yep, because he had he, to
0: apologize.
1: He had to work out and then he went right to the uh, the post game interview. Yeah, he's a uh, he's an interesting one. To to get back to the initial the,
0: the Sixers nutritionist, like they went from last year where they had to worry about not killing Zaire, very big priority by the way. But now they're they're the nutritionist becomes real big in terms of allowing. Isaiah Joe to bulk up to like, it's not, he's, he's gotta, he's gotta really dedicate himself in many different aspects.
1: Yeah. The, uh, so, so to go back to the initial question though, it is the, the more you talk through it, really all of these guys are specialists in one way or another. They, they're they yeah. not, obviously the, the idea that Matisse is a specialist is different from Mike Scott being a specialist. You know, they're, they're giving you a little bit different, um, strengths on each end of the court. But on the other end, like Matisse, he needs to get from a complete zero on offense to passable, um, which is a matter of him making his shots at this point. And Mike Scott, I mean, he's a better shooter than Matisse. He has more gravity. I actually think, Mike Scott, I would give a little more leeway than than you were giving credit for. Not to say that he deserves a lot of leeway um, in a vacuum. (laughs) Like, if we had more normal players and more well-rounded players, I think— he probably would be the first guy you, you put away. but And
0: I think I th- also think he will get more leeway in part because he has such a long track record. Like, you know what that shooting is eventually going to normalize back to. So even if he goes through a two-month spell where he can't make a shot, like, you know, eventually that shot is coming back and you know what he is. And since there's so much more knowledge and theoretically he's a veteran, so he should make better decisions, although sometimes that is eh. Um, and, and... Quite frankly, physically, like, he has a better chance of competing defensively than Furkan and, and Isaiah Joe anyway. And don't misconstrue that. He's not a good defender, but he has more of a chance of holding up in playoffs anyway. If there's anyone who I think is going to survive a, a shooting slump and still stay in the rotation out of these four, it is certainly Mike Scott to me. Yeah. And,
1: yeah, yeah his his body, he's, he's, he's bigger than these guys. His bigger problems on defense come off ball and understanding rotations and things like that. He's a space cadet. Yeah, he really he really does have some bad possessions. Now that said, he has the proven playoff track record, and I do think there's something to you play the same team every night. At some point, the coaching can knock the space cadet out of you a little bit <laughs> yes. and he can he can focus in a little bit on defense. So I, I would say Mike Scott, I would give him probably the biggest threshold. Um Matisse more of a volume concern than than even the shooting, just because he's so hesitant and really when he puts the ball on the floor it, yeah, bad things happen. It's pretty dicey. I love Matisse, yeah. but he's not he's not really expanding his game in that sense. And Cork, he has to shoot 40%. I, I you know, like he
0: And I have a lot of confidence he will, to be honest.
1: Yeah. He he does provide a little more than uh than some of these guys off the dribble. He can run a pick and roll in a pinch. He can run a dribble handoff in a pinch. I nope. wouldn't say he's a star at that, but no. it, but but him putting the ball on the floor, I'm not a— uh, I'm not terrified in the same way like Matisse when when he has that.
0: But also, also probably the weakest defender of the group too. Yeah, it's uh you've got a lot of imperfect options for a uh, a role there. But I agree with you. I think Mike Scott is the surest bet to remain in the rotation, even if he hits a slump. Uh, I think we had another one on. Yeah, from from Andrew Goldstein, who uh, is my. He's the reason I have the nickname I don't like. Uh, does the hot shooting of Isaiah Joe of late put Korkmaz's spot in the rotation at risk when he returns? Maybe.
1: So so Doc had an interesting point last night because that's a very obvious question to ask after the the week that Isaiah Joe has had with his three-point shooting. Does this mean he's in the rotation now? And, and if you'll recall, before the COVID hit and... You know the contract tracing and everything, the Sixers had a pretty rigid 10-man rotation. Now, whether that was Miles or Theibel as the 10th guy or Maxi or whatever, that changed a little bit. And Doc was asked, all right, well, now you have Isaiah Joe, who was not even sniffing the rotation in the early games. Does he factor in now? And Doc was basically like, I don't really care about the 10-man rotation. I'll play 11, I'll play 12, I'll play 13. And you know what's funny? I remember the Shake Milton went nuts game at Staples Center last year. You were at that
0: game, right? Yep. Yep. That was right before COVID. One of the things
1: I remembered was, man, the Clippers are playing a ton of guys in that game. And I think they, they went up to like a 12-man rotation. And Mike Breen at one point mentioned like, man, they are really, like they got down to the Amir Coffees, I believe, and, (laughs) and some of these guys. Like they're really playing a lot of guys. So I will be interested to see Let's say Cork comes back. You know he's still in. Uh, he's still in street clothes on the bench, getting his uh, getting his fits off every night. I'm enjoying watching that. But you have him. You have Curry potentially coming back next week. We'll see what happened. I mean, Mike Scott got hurt again in in last night's game, so maybe for for at least a few weeks here, Isaiah Joe might just be able to play anyway with with absences.
0: Yeah, I mean, this might be a. a, a I mean, every season that your rotation is never truly set but this might be of any season this might be the one where you're you just never have your normal full 10 guys available uh so i i mean isaiah joe could they could both be in a rotation to your point
1: but to answer andrews question maybe i don't know you know yeah. like i don't i don't think you want to bench Moz you know it'd be funny if he got wally pip by isaiah joe um but I, I do think isaiah joe has done enough to not freeze him out either so Sure. It's a no, it's I, a good it, problem to have for sure.
0: I think it would be a mistake to, you know, when Cork and Curry come back to completely relegate Isaiah Joe um to the G League whenever that starts up. But I also think like we're going to jump the gun here because that's what we love to do with young players. Let's see how he holds up against uh more teams and and more people he has to defend and just a longer sample size. I think he has shown enough to certainly to be excited about his future. Like I said, I have some hope that if he can add some weight that there is some defensive potential there. And if you just add a passable or better defender along with that shot, like I think he's going to have a spot in an NBA rotation, is that ready to be in a playoff rotation right now? We'll see. But I guess my argument to that would be, I don't know if Korkmaz is ready to be in a playoff rotation right now anyway, so he has a chance. He has a chance.
1: If uh, if Joe does pan out here, and I, I would agree with what you said there, like,
0: and I, I think Joe probably has, I, I would certainly say Joe has more long term potential than Corkmaz. I think, but I also think there's a chance they could both end up being not like top end of the bench rotation guys, but I think there's a chance they're both NBA players too.
1: Yeah, um, yeah Joe is not on the level of Maxi where M- Maxi needs to be playing. he yes. he has he shown enough where regardless of, of his um his allergy to the free-throw line like he he deserves to be playing he is providing some positive value on both ends of the floor and he has enough long--term potential where where you need to, to have him on the court I wouldn't put Joe quite at that level but but he has certainly moved up into let's call it the intriguing category
0: uh, yeah so that's that's awesome and where it does not take a coronavirus outbreak to get him on the court
1: yeah and and i will say if if joe turns into even you know like an eighth man like like a good eighth man on a team this has been some good drafting in the latter end of the first round and second round over the past couple of years from these guys
0: oh for sure we'll, I, let, for sure and i'm again, I'm, not, I'm not
1: ready to crown him yet but this is uh th- th- this trend has has been pretty good
0: and even going back to uh, to landry who was integral in a a trade um, they have hit on a they're like they're ex- they have well exceeded the expected value of these 20s picks, 20s and 30s, uh, and that is very key for a team that is so expensive and doesn't have the elite trade chips that they once did. Uh, that is a, a a part that has been consistent and a part that has been very very important. Like if if Maxi and look, we talked about it before. Obvious flashes of skill, obvious flashes of talent, upside some refinement he needs to do to reach that. But if he reaches even 75% of the potential he's showing right now, that's a huge benefit for a team that just does not have very many avenues to add players like that. Um, they're doing real well in that department, real, which makes some of their you know, decisions in terms of not rostering draft picks and the whole Posechniks debacle uh, from a couple of years ago, because this is mostly the same scouting staff. And it makes that um, even more frustrating. I, even more frustrating.
1: I remember a couple of years ago when they did not pick up Cork's third-year option. You wrote an article about their slow burn of assets and how they are going to struggle to, or how they they might struggle, and they don't have a lot of chances to get these cheaper contributors now. And I mean that that was true at the time. It is funny that Cork ended up. You know, we'll see what he ends up being I don't want to say like he's a home run but they were able to get him back and he's able to provide them some value he's part of it so to uh
0: the asset burn is much more in the form of trades but yeah and and they've and lost that
1: but with I don't even want to say a limited number of assets just a more normal number of assets compared to when they were sitting on all of these first round picks and all of these seconds they they've done a good job hitting on them i uh this got brought up in the comments of my article today shake has to be one of the best value contracts in the league right
3: now yeah
0: well i think i think uh didn't hollinger have him in like one or two i don't know on on non-rookie contracts i think hollinger had him like a second best value contract in the league and that was before the season
1: yeah i mean he should be it's and, and to have him for two more years at that number that is uh look there's a reason shake milton was not even mentioned in these james harden trades
0: yeah, look, and like I think that's a good point to bring up. I think we're going to look at a lot of these people and pencil them in as 10-year Sixers. That's not always how it works. Sometimes they are headliners in a, a, not even headliners, but key pieces in a big trade. And even if that ends up happening and you lose maybe one of these players that you've now become emotionally attached to, and I get that as a fan, the fact that they have developed the point where they can be significant pieces in a James Harden trade is a huge benefit for a team that just didn't have a whole a whole lot of young talent Not too long ago. Well,
1: And to me, Shake has more value to a good team and an expensive team like the Sixers because, you know, obviously he, I'm sure he'd kill it in Houston, but for a team that doesn't have the expensive contracts on their books anymore, congrats to uh, Tillman Fertitta for getting under the, the luxury tax, you know, for a team that doesn't have aspirations of contending, he'll still be awesome, but the the value isn't quite the same of having a, like a, a rock solid contributor, somebody who will be in your playoff rotation and can handle the ball um, on the deal that they have shake on. It's, it's a great
0: thing. All right, let's move on to one of those younger players. This is for David Sherman at Phil's and Thrills. Do you think Maxi's shooting form is consistent and good enough, good looking enough for him to become a reliable shooter on open looks?
1: There was a pretty funny. Screen grab. I think one of my friends sent it to me on a pull-up jumper from Maxi last night. His feet were all over the place. Yeah, his feet go everywhere. And it was my friend told me he was like my stream on on League Pass froze at this exact moment where he's at the top of his jump and he made he ended up making the shot. It was one of those first quarter jumpers, and he was like, "Man, that is that is like not normal how that's happening." What what do you think? I I, uh, I can't really say I have examined it from a, a shot doctor
0: perspective that much. Yeah, I would, the, the, the foot thing is a, a real thing. And on the one hand, the fact that he can maintain semi-consistent upper body motion, even when his feet start flailing like Bambi, like that helps him on pull up jumpers, I think a little bit. On the other hand, you would like much like those feet flail at times, even when he's not coming like fast downhill off of a screen or coming you know, side to side quickly. Like it it seems like that could be cleaned up a little bit. His form isn't what you would teach. I don't think. And I like the low release aspect of it does concern me in terms of his ability to get it off, especially on contested pull-ups off of screens. But I think his, his overall, like I think if you start looking and I haven't done a full dive on his mechanics either, but I think when you start looking at the rotation on the ball, where he's missing. I think they're consistent enough that he can be at least a passable shooter. Will he ever be great and consistent? I don't know. Will he ever be able to get it off quick enough off of screens? That to me is a much bigger concern. But certainly so far in what he has done off the dribble, especially in the mid-range, I am more optimistic. And I think when he came in, I didn't think he was going to be a non-shooter. I just thought there was a chance he was a streaky shooter. I still think that's probably mostly true. But I think he's been okay mid-range off the dribble and okay off the catch from three. And if those two are true and end up being true, then I think that is a very good start. But the form is not what you would prefer. The the idea of him pulling up
1: on a three-pointer when the defense goes under on the screen, it, it doesn't feel like that is that close for him right now. It seems to me like he needs to take a couple dribbles in and get that momentum and maybe have a little more space to pull up he is the uh he's almost the anti-shake in that way shakes feet are quiet he's yeah. uh he's obviously not nearly as explosive as Maxi is he also draws about 10 times as many fouls as him um and again like to be fair Which again
0: it's not like shake's a great foul drawer he's just, I, I
1: think shake is a pretty good foul drawer
0: for for his athleticism and for his usage yeah I think he's he's pretty fair but he's not like we're not talking not to bring up a sore subject, we're not talking James Harden here. Yeah. Shake's a plus foul drawer, though. He, uh, yeah, and it's just, you
1: know, Shake has all of these different quirky finishes where, as Maxi, if he's going all the way to the rim, sometimes he does these crazy layups, all of these things. Um, it, it, to me, he just does not have the quiet feet of like, you know, I'm, I'm just thinking like a Clay Thompson, you know, so right. some of these great shooters where it just feels like they're a little more under control when they're running sure. full speed and all of these things, but Hey, he's a, he's a hard worker and he's, he's 20 years old. So, you know, the idea that he can improve on this in, uh, in time, yeah. I'm not ruling that out.
0: No, I, I, footwork is, I think something that can be cleaned up, um, for sure. For sure. But that's the swing skill, right? Yep. A hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, look, if he ever gets to the point where defenders are scared of going under his screens, um, oh. He's going to get in pain paint a lot. He's going to paint a lot. And when I say, uh, sw-
1: and when I say swing skill, I mean, from good NBA player to star level, NBA player, right, from or rotation player to
0: all-star or, or, yeah, or something, something like, like that. that. All right. So this one is, I lost my place. Where am I? Where am I? Uh, This one from Anik, uh, given the potential for COVID related absences in the playoffs, does that change how the Sixers should utilize the bottom of their roster spots? should they prioritize veterans over young players with upside? I mean, no, my first answer would be no. Um, because I, I look, we're seeing it play out right now with Isaiah Joe and with Tyrese who just go back three weeks ago. We would have said, we didn't know if Tyrese was in a 10 man rotation. And then he outplayed Fible real early in the, the two preseason games. And he's pretty much held a spot ever since, but there's a point where you didn't know if, if, your rookie was going to be in a 10-man rotation. He was right on the fringes. He was probably that fighting for that 10th spot. So now you've seen Maxie prove what he has, or at least show what he has. You've seen Isaiah Joe show what he has. It's really important to give those guys an opportunity to play and to evaluate and to grow. And also, like, I don't think the upgrades to the ninth and 10th spots on the roster are going to be what changes this team's championship. Equity, at least right now. No. We'll see what the buyout market looks like. They but don't have a ton
1: of championship equity right now. So no so the idea of adding veterans to maybe become a stronger second round exit at this point, I don't want to put a complete ceiling on these guys, but I, I think right now we would put them below the, the finals contender level. So
0: Sure. I I don't know. I I like watching
1: Isaiah Joe play. Like how much better are you going to get from a
0: from a veteran? And like one of your pathways to get to a championship contender outside of a major trade, or even with a major trade, because he could be a piece, is developing people like Shake and Tyrese. You need them to be able to grow as players and right now there's they're giving every indication that they can. Let that play out. And look, if you get to the buyout market or a trade deadline like a really good like even a six-man, let's say Lou Williams, because he wouldn't, but let's say someone of that type, of that caliber, of that stature becomes available, and that shifts the rotation, and maybe maybe things change because of that. Okay. Or maybe you can upgrade Danny Greenspot, and he moves to the bench, and that shifts the rotation. But right now, like, no, that's not a priority for me, which is weird, because the Sixers' end of bench has always been trash for so long. But now you have some kids who can play. The Danny
1: Green move, and I think we're we're gonna have a question about that later. That that one seems a little more realistic to me. But you know, in, in terms of like adding Lou Williams, who's still a very good player, obviously. Uh, no, let's shake Cook. I, I don't want to. I don't want these people here. Also, to to get back to the initial question, I don't want to turn this into uh, the daily podcast from the New York Times or anything. But I, I would hope by playoff time, all these guys have vaccines.
0: Oh sure um yeah and and like you don't you don't make a change like that or you don't limit young players playing time like that an opportunity like that just to get through some regular season games uh like these seedings are going to be funky anyway i don't think there's really any way to avoid that making a marginal upgrade in your eighth ninth or tenth man probably isn't going to change that all that much all right so this um i feel like we are veering on to negativity but this one from ps5 phil which, by the way, I'm completely jealous even though I would never have enough time to make use of it anyway. Uh, You repeatedly said with Rich that Joel needs a scoring or ball-handling wing who can create shots to really become a contender, which dovetails off of your last question. Even though Ben works alongside Joel, do we still need to move on from Ben because he doesn't fit out the above-mentioned skills? So I, I think we discussed this a little bit not too long ago. I am still not of the belief that Ben and Joel can't work and you need to move Ben. I what is, never really made that argument. What does work my argument mean? Has, oh,
1: what, was that? what does work mean, too? Like, there are degrees of working.
0: Sure. But if you were able to add, and this like encompassed my entire day yesterday, but if you were able to add someone like Bradley Beal, could those three form a championship core? I think you could start contending with those three. I don't think you're getting Bradley Beal without trading Ben Simmons. And that's why we talk about Ben so much. I think you need especially because so much of your large dollar contract is a negative asset. You can't make a trade like Brooklyn made because a, you can't trade as many picks as they do. Cause you already traded one in 2025 and B, whereas Karis Levert is a medium sized contract. That's a positive value. All of your contracts above Danny green are very negative value with the exception of Ben Simmons. So I think that's why his name gets brought up a lot. I think it's real tough to construct a trade for a, certainly a James Harden level, even a Bradley Beal level without including Ben Simmons. So he gets brought up because you just don't have enough avenues to get that perimeter score that you need as much, or from my perspective, more so than because I don't think I I don't think you need to move on from Ben. I just think you're limited on the ways you can upgrade and by adding a star player.
1: That's part of it. But the, the do Ben Joel or Ben and it's a question. Do Ben and Joel work at the level you need like a championship level that's the existential question hanging over this whole season, sure. regardless of what what moves you can make around the edges, what you could get for Ben, those things. Like, like do they actually work? I. That's why I said, you know, what degree of work are you talking about? I am very confident that with the proper personnel around them, and they do have the proper personnel around them this year, that those two, when they play together with Danny Green, Seth Curry, Tobias Harris – they're going to clean people's clocks in the regular season sure. when they uh, when they are on the court. Fifty
0: win pace, second round. Yep, they uh,
3: very confident.
1: I think the starting lineup is like plus eighteen point six over a hundred possessions right now. Obviously, still pretty small sample. We're talking about three hundred some possessions due to uh, due to Mister COVID. But but do, do they work on the championship level? My answer: to That's probably no right now.
0: Oh. Sure. Uh, no, look, I, I I very much believe, and and we've I think we've taken some grief for this that they are not a true championship contender right now, and that's because I think you need a star level perimeter creator. If you get that, does that change the Beed Simmons dynamic enough? Like, does that cover up their weaknesses? Is, is this conversation we're having some percentage because Ben Cramp spacing, but some percentage because you just need that skill set that you don't have. Uh, I would I would I I would love to say. I see a pathway to getting somebody like Bradley Beal while keeping Ben Simmons, and we can figure that out and we can test that. But when I bring up Ben Simmons and and the fact that there's a chance that he has moved, it's because I don't see a a realistic pathway to that. I I mentioned this on Twitter. I think Bradley Beal is going to end up costing a lot more. If he does eventually one out of Washington, I think he's going to end up costing a lot more than people expect. If
1: you are a fringe all-star, the the price in the NBA right now is like absurd.
0: It's like four or five years worth worth of drafts. It's insane. And the Sixers, because of that, at Horford trade, they are a little bit more limited, at least as of now. We'll see if they have other ways to acquire those picks. The
1: one thing I will say about Bradley Beal, compared to Harden, the again, he's not as good as Harden, but if you were able to acquire him without giving up Ben, he's probably a nicer fit with Ben and Joel. Ben, Ben could still continue to have the ball a lot, and you could probably do more creative things with Beal running off the ball, whereas Harden off the ball is um, is taking a chill 35 feet from the basket.
0: Taking a chill off the ball, taking a chill in transition defense, taking a chill at times on defense in general. That that would
1: be from a, just like looking at the film nerd aspect of this, Doc could do some pretty creative stuff with Beal, Simmons, and Embiid, whereas, uh, sure. whereas Harden is less creative stuff, but but
0: good stuff, nonetheless. <laughs> I just think there's another team that's going to beat whatever offer of draft picks the Sixers can include. Now, maybe, maybe like we said, maybe Maxi and Milton develop enough where you can include them. And I'm, if we're talking about a 27 year old Embiid who does fit so well with Embiid and Simmons, and you're talking about making that a, a big three, then all of a sudden your your appetite for including Maxi and or Milton increases, and maybe they show enough that. You know, because the Sixers can only trade like, let's say, three first round picks right now, uh, because you uh stepping rule and all that, and they'll probably try to acquire future picks where so they're not bound by that anymore. But because they can't offer as many picks as some teams can, maybe Maxie and Milton can um make up some of that ground and you can get back into these conversations for these real elite perimeter scores. We'll see. I don't think they're 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 done in that regard. Um but I think a I think a lot of it comes up because they they just don't have the high-value trade chips that other teams might. And I'd I'd love... You're right. I'd I'd love... I think I made a tweet the other day that I think some people misconstrued and maybe I should have worded worded it better uh, where I said that Beal wasn't as good of a player as Harden and didn't increase their championship odds as much. I do believe that. But if you're able to keep Simmons and you're able to make that a big three, I think his skill set would fit in. Like, there aren't many players who are going to become available will be better and have that right skill set to fit. He is a really intriguing target, so hope that Washington... Continues to suck, real bad. I, th- I think that's a.
1: Actually, they're they're in a positive win differential or point differential right now, despite being three and
0: eight. So they have like like one huge blowout or something.
1: They, yeah, they blew out Phoenix the other night. But I mean, even if you look at their their two Sixers games, those were very close. So yeah, they they've had a lot of those losses this year.
0: And maybe Westbrook just becomes too much of a pain in the ass to play with. I could I would understand it from Brad's perspective. All right, let's see. How close are we to seeing Shake starting? Is it heartening how well he is playing despite a subpar three-point percentage? I think Shake's shooting, what, like 31% from three? I should have that up, yep. but I don't.
1: Yeah, he is. Th- I think it's 32. And do you know what he's shooting from two-point percentage? I had this in my piece today. Or two It's point. like
0: right under 50, right? No,
1: no, no, no. no? 62% on twos. Get the fuck. Right
0: oh, now. I think 50 was right, was his overall, I think, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, he's shooting 49% from the field overall, which is what I was thinking at. Yeah, 61.2 from two. (laughs) For a guy who can barely jump and isn't super quick, that's really good. Yeah. I take take that back. He can actually, like, when he gets a chance to load up, he can throw down some pretty decent dunks. I'll, I'll take that back.
1: And he loves unfurling those arms. As I say all the time, he is.
0: <laughs> oh, that, that lefty layup. He, he freaking loves. And he has
1: some bad, again, he doesn't make too many turnovers, but I, I'm remembering one from a few games ago. Uh, he loves like bounce past the Joe. Well, that was oh. bad, but I'm talking about the one where he, he loves like winding his winding up to avoid somebody reaching in on the drive and basically spinning his arm around them and, sometimes that doesn't work it, it looks cool when it it does work but uh yeah I mean he's been tremendous so to answer your question on uh on is that heartening about i think he has a plus sixty percent true shooting percentage yeah. despite only shooting thirty one percent from three yeah hell yeah I'm encouraged by that because
0: he's a better shooter than thirty one percent from three we we know 100%. that he will he i'm i'm very confident he will end up shooting at least thirty seven percent from three when the season is over.
1: And as for the other part of the question, I'm pretty firmly planning my flag on shake should come off the bench Island. I, I understand that you want him to, to start. I understand that Danny green can be a little bit frustrating. You absolutely nailed that in your prediction before the season that, that fans are going to get frustrated with Danny green, who is an imperfect player, even at his peak and now is well, well below his peak. Um, but but to me, Shake, his value is that he can run that entire second unit. So if you move Green to the bench, okay, yeah, Shake is now starting. But like you're just completely relying on Maxi on that second yeah. unit now, which I, I don't really feel like giving Maxi the entire keys to the offense. It, it's nice to have him play with Shake and have multiple ball handlers. And the other thing that is nice about Danny Green. He seems absolutely fine if Shake is having one of his great games, like last night's game, if, and if, if that game is close. If Shake is going good, Doc is going to play Shake at the end of the game and, and yeah. take Danny Green off. And there have been games where Shake wasn't playing quite as well, and Danny Green's defense was valuable. I'm thinking of that Toronto-Rock fight a few weeks ago. Then give Danny Green the chance. So right now, I, I like what they have going. It's, it's a, if it ain't broke, don't fix it type of thing. Now, would you want to maybe improve the Danny Green spot via trade. If you can do that at some point, maybe, but I, I'm, I'm fine with where they are right now. I, yeah. I like the shake. Isn't
0: starting. I, I think that's the perfect spot for him. And I, I mean, this is maybe one thing I overlooked when we made our preseason predictions. Cause I, I, predicted that shake wouldn't be in the running for six man because he would be elevated to the starting spot. But when you look at back at doc's history, like he is very clearly okay. Having one of his better players come off the bench. So even if the shake ends up being a, a better overall, player than let's say Danny Green or Seth Curry or a more effective player. Like the way that those skill sets fit and the way that Shake has been relied upon on that all bench unit, like I think there's going to be inertia to change there. And it probably should be with the way everything is working right now in terms of those rotations. So I don't think Shake is going to start, even though he probably deserves it, I think they're going to keep it going until they feel like they're forced to change. More so than Shake is going to run them out of it.
1: He, he has more opportunity to cook off the bench. It's it's yep. a, a pretty simple thing, and I love what they have going because he can he can put up these huge numbers, and then at the end of the game, you know, with Embiid, Simmons, Harris, and Curry, he fits like a glove as an off-ball guy. He can, yep. he can spot up. He can run some pick and rolls in tough situations. I'm thinking back to opening night. You know, they had him running, basically running the offense at the end of the game's and, and to be fair, like Shake is not going to have awesome games like last night at, at all times. So it, it does give you the freedom to say, okay, Danny's having a better game than him tonight. He's making his threes. Maybe there's a specific off ball defensive matchup where, where he's a better fit. So
0: I, I like what they have going. And I, I think sometimes people do overuse a phrase it's not who starts that matters, it's who finishes. Well, starting lineup matters too, because you're usually going against the other team's best, te- best uh, lineup. And you want to make sure you can compete in those eight-minute stretches to start the first and the third. They're killing teams. They're going to be they're going to be your most used lineup, but they have a good lineup. That starting lineup fits. Shake is be, is playing well in his role off the bench, and he's been finishing even before COVID. He was finishing a lot of the games too. So I think I think Shake's role is is okay. Uh. Similar question: How soon until people start complaining about the rigidity of Doc's rotations? Well, so I guess I'll, I'll I'll take it off the rotations. I don't think fans really start complaining about Doc until he loses the playoff series. I think there is a a new coach, uh, you know, sort of like a new relationship shine that a lot of people have. And look, I think Doc is a good coach above average coach. We can debate anywhere in the eight to 12 range, but I think he's, he's earned sort of that uh, reputation. Um, he is imperfect. I think people will eventually see those imperfections, but I think by and large, a narrative around him will be very positive positive. And if there's frustration, it won't come until a playoff series.
1: When I read the word rigidity, the first thing that came to mind was letting Bradley Beal score oh my God. a billion points. 60. And, and, and just and having 60
0: ruined my mentions yesterday, too. And having
1: Danny Green
0: get torched by him off the
1: ball, just not whether it was switching up coverages or putting Ben Simmons on him. I know you don't like putting Ben on the off-ball guys, but come on, at some point and maybe that was Dan Burke too I, I don't know that that's what i was thinking with rigidity I, I did think that night though when bradley beal was lighting them up i didn't really hear as much of a and a backlash as we might have heard oh, in Brett previous oh Brett would have been
0: years. fired by the entire fan base after that game yeah yeah
1: to be fair like i don't think you should I, I think it's fair to point out okay doc what the hell are you doing but also like Sure. We don't need to fire you at this point. Sure. So,
0: sure. yeah, he's been... And when coaches are new, we have an overly optimistic rose-colored view. And when coaches have been around for a while, we nitpick every flaw that they have. And that's true in many relationships in life. And I think that's certainly true in fandom.
1: When we talk about the rotations, though, yeah, it's it's been fairly consistent in that he does like playing Simmons and Embiid together more than Brett. He does like having an all-bench unit at times. For the most part, that's worked so far. So I, I think the, the answer is they'll start complaining when it doesn't work. And, you know, m- maybe there won't be quite as much rigidity if if he follows through on his promise to play 12 or 13 guys a game. I think I yeah. might I might raise an eyebrow or two if that
0: happens. But I think what's probably more likely is that 10th fan will be rotated out at times. Um, all right, two more, and then I didn't realize we were already over an hour. I apologize for that. This one from our former colleague and current Eagles reporter, Brandon Lee Goughton. Uh How would you split the percentage of credit of the Sixers strong start between Maury and Doc?
1: Well, I would give 90% to Embiid. So I don't, I don't know, maybe 7% for Maury and then 3 for for Doc. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're just looking at the two of them who deserves more credit, I would say mori for sure. I mean, just having the shooting around and being Simmons that the team makes more sense. And like we just kind of said with doc, he, he hasn't been perfect. I, uh, I like some of the things I've, I've seen from doc. Like I just, he seems like a pretty easy guy to play for. He seems like in addition to running good stuff, he seems like a good motivator The I love the point of, uh, that he makes of trying to get guys thirty and forty points and out games. Yeah. He seems he seems to value that a lot, and you know that might seem stupid, but I, I don't know.
0: I, I I've enjoyed that. So Tyrese will would have liked if he dropped a forty spot. Yeah. 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 So should have been paying attention when he had the chance, but yeah. Yeah. So, I guess I guess sort of like the way I would answer. I, is,
1: I would say. Can I? Can, let me let me just finish yep. on Doc. I have been impressed by how together they have looked in a short period of time. That that was yeah. a legitimate challenge for him he did not have the benefit of a million practices of just a full offseason where these guys can run up and down in the gym together and get to know each other's games and now we're at the point where these guys are barely allowed in the same room with each other for yep. five minutes so for them to look like they make sense when they have everybody together i've been uh, i've been impressed by that but yeah for sure give more credit to more
0: i mean we had, we had one of the questions we had was how does the chemistry look and i i passed over that because I thought that had a chance to be brought up here. Their chemistry looked very good considering how much change and how little time they had to come together. Uh, in terms of, you know, in terms of percentages, I would probably say 50% Mori, 25% Doc, and 25% Schedule. And I think that's one aspect that we have to mention as well. Like, they have not played very many competitive, tough, contending teams we will see how everything looks and how much real progress they have made when that happened we mentioned this before we we're hoping this was going to be the week then COVID hit uh both teams um sixers when they're going up against nuggets heat when they're coming up here against the sixers i think that has had an impact i don't think we have a true eval of how much progress this team has made but i would i, I would i would give more to maury um, because I think those, how that, those pieces fit around you all is super, super important.
1: Yeah. The right answer here is that there are a lot of things that, that right. you would credit schedule and just playing great basketball. Yep. Seth Curry making every shot possible. I mean, I know the fit is good, but that's
0: not going to happen. So true Hanlon gets a little bit of credit. Chris Babcock gets credit. Sure. All these sixers assistant coaches get credit. Um, yeah, no, it's always much more complicated than we make it out. Move on to the final one and end this podcast with this question. This one from name is just John. So that could be anyone. Do we even have hope anymore? I assume this is coming on the heels of James Harden, but interpret that however you want. 2020 was a bad year to have hope for, but
1: I mean, look
0: (laughs) so much of the Sixers
1: discussion over the past couple of months when it comes to this Harden trade comes around the, the understanding of they're trying to win a title. They need to get yep. one, you know, flags fly forever, all that stuff. And I get that. I think that uh, that would validate the process in, in a lot of people's eyes. That would... The, the goal is to, you play to
0: win the game. I mean, the goal, except when you're trying to lose at the beginning. Uh, when I when I made my arguments for why they should tank, and I did that before Hanky ever got here, um, back in the old Liberty Ballers days with Brandon Lee Gowton, it wasn't so they could get to the second round. Yeah. It was flags fly forever,
1: 100%. So the goal is to win a championship. Do they feel like they have the championship upside? I would say never say never, but it's it feels like they're a piece off for sure. Um but if you just like enjoy watching basketball, I think this is going to be an enjoyable team to watch and I would say for for the future, they, they still have Ben Simmons they have positive developments from Maxi, from Shake. There are some good things, it seems like, happening here. So, you know, we don't know what the league is going to look like for the next 12 months. Maybe there's another trade sure. that is made available. Maybe the Sixers have a great playoff series where like, the team that they can't get past, Seth Curry shoots 80% in that playoff series, and they, they win in six or something like that. I, I don't want to foreclose on the idea that they they could win a championship with this group. It seems unlikely at this point, but to to give up hope completely don't don't do that. In, oh. Enjoy the team that you're watching right now. The team looks like it makes sense. It looks like they're going to win a lot of regular season games, and you know, hopefully, monitor the league and and see uh you know hope, hope a few things go right, whether that's a trade or individual improvement to uh to change the
0: calculus on the championship idea. And you know, I got I got some feedback. From our last pod that it sounded like we were whining. And it, at times I'm sure it did. Like I look at opportunities to acquire star players as very serious inflection points in the trajectory of a career. So when those come and go, I will talk about it and focus on it. Because how could you not? So wh- these players like Harden don't come around often. Um Does that mean they should have made the trade? It's tough to say when we don't know the full details of the deal. I I mean, we said it in the last podcast, I would have been uncomfortable giving up what Brooklyn did uh, for that rental. But it's still tough to acknowledge that that was an opportunity that you just don't know when the next one will come around. So even if if the asking price was too high, you would still be disappointed because the asking price isn't what you were hoping it would be. It doesn't mean it's a mistake. It's just disappointment. But when you pivot away from that, you know, you still have, like you said, Ben Simmons Who's still a good basketball player, and you have pieces like Maxi and Milton, who are worth far more than they were 12 months ago. And the development of those two, both as players who could be long-term parts of your rotation, and also as trade chips who could be used to get the next third big piece, are very key developments. So you have a good player. You have a just look at the last couple of months. You have Shake Milton establishing him, continuing to establish himself to build off of what he did last spring. Into a good run in August, and now a good start to the season. You have uh, Tyrese Maxey turning what could have been—you were one jumper away from having nothing. Now you've got a guy that Houston is demanding in a trade for James Harden, and that's all happened in a couple of months. You've added Daryl Morey to the front office. You've added Doc Rivers to the coaching staff. If you look at the directory, it's still positive. And even though you look, that opportunity came and went or maybe that opportunity that you were hoping wasn't there was there, and we don't really know the difference because of the uh, details of the trade, the trajectory is still one you can have hope for, for sure. And also, backdrop to all that, you've got Joel Embiid playing the best basketball of his life. So yeah, there's still certainly hope, for sure. Even some of the reasons for
1: negativity in in the months prior to this season starting, Tobias Harris is playing awesome. You know, if he can keep this up, obviously not a— not a huge positive contract, or, or really a positive contract at all. But that's that's somebody who can help you win games. So, yeah, th- I think there's a, a decent amount of things. Also, by the way, we we should just say this too. When it comes to the Harden deal, maybe Fertita
0: didn't want to give Harden could be. to the could be Sixers. I, I, again, though, when you go back to Brian Winhurst and a report that they were talking to, um, talking to um, Simmons and Matisse that there was a possibility they would be traded. I think Keith Pompey reported the same thing. When you have conversations like that happening, it seems like there was at least a chance for Tito would have approved the deal. Uh, I don't think they would have gotten to that point uh, and risked those relationships if there wasn't. But it certainly could have impacted the asking price. Yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, I think that's a good place. We ended up being a much longer podcast than I was hoping for and emptied out much more of the mailbag than I was thinking we would. If you have any questions, we're gonna, like I said, we're going to try doing these mailbag podcasts more regularly. Send them to mailbag at Sixersbeat.com. We will try to discuss them on a future show. But thank you, Rich, for jumping on, and we'll talk to you soon.
3: See you, man. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data